It's Tuesday, March 1st, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, you're joining us from Arizona, uh, out there to watch uh, some of the Guardians minor leaguers in camp, but we're keeping track of and we're sort of keeping one eye on Jupiter, Florida, where the players and owners met yesterday for 16 hours on the uh, deadline that was sort of th- uh, floated out there by Major League Baseball to, to sort of preserve the 162-game schedule. Uh, the uh, Both sides, they went past that deadline, but are meeting again today, sort of a deadline day two, and uh, there, there's been some decent progress. Yeah, Joe, uh, you know, you wonder why they didn't do this uh, three <laughs> or four weeks ago, but I guess, uh, you know, the pressure of a deadline, you know, makes things happen. And uh, that's what happened yesterday. We saw some, uh, you know, some progress uh, or some, you know, kind of both sides coming together. It sounds like, um, you know, they've agreed on a 12-team playoff as opposed to the 14-team playoff structure that the owners wanted. Um, the union uh, does not, will not uh, pursue its expansion of uh, arbitration, you know, expanding the arbitration uh, uh, qualification. They were looking for, you know, to, to up the uh, Super 2 status from two years and 22% to two years and 35% of the players. It looks like that's going to say a 2 and 22%, uh, but still some, uh, still some hurdles to uh, clear. But it looks like the deadline is set at 5 p.m. today. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the most optimistic I think either side has been toward reaching a deal. Yeah, uh, there's still uh, there's still a little bit apart on the the luxury tax threshold. Uh, it's at 220 million uh, right now. Uh, the minimum salary it's at 675 million, and the pre-arbitration bonus pool right now, um, 25 million is is the number that's out there. I guess uh, that they they've gotten to. So, I uh, I guess. You know, progress is good, but there's still at least three areas, three big areas that have been ongoing uh, throughout these whole um, uh, negotiations that that need to get resolved here in the, I guess it's not even the 11th hour, it's the 12th hour, it's it's beyond that. Uh, but if they do come to an agreement by 5 p.m. today, which is optimistic, obviously, uh, you know, how soon before we can start seeing guys showing up in camps? Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, the commissioner, uh, Rob Manfred, said, you know, three to seven days, I think it would take to get camps up and running. But first, you know, they've got to ratify the They've got to ratify the deal uh, before camps open. So 23 of the 30 owners would have to approve it and the players would have to approve it. Uh, so, you know, th- there's that thing sitting there. Uh, but, you know, I would think, you know, they want, they want to have what a 20, they said a 28 day spring training at the minimum. Um, you know, four weeks. So, you know, that's pushing it. I mean, uh, you know, you probably, they will probably have to push back to the start of the regular season anyways, I would think. Right. Maybe, maybe take those first games in the, the first series of opening weekend and maybe move them to the end of the, uh, the season and play them that way. Who knows, you know, just, just moving one series, uh, you know, pushing things back might, might work that way. Uh, just a thought. Uh, there have been rumblings and rumors that, you know, there are a handful, maybe eight uh, teams, eight small market teams that are sort of 
really digging in their heels, the owners are on some of these issues, particularly on uh, issues like luxury tax and things like that. Uh, there, there was talk that uh, the the league now is is sort of pressuring the players' association to drop their grievance against uh, at least four of those teams uh, that dates back a couple of years uh, about not spending their um, uh, their revenue sharing money on uh, uh, payroll uh, like they were supposed to. Uh, it, the rumors we were hearing would, were that the Guardians were were one of those small market teams that was sort of uh, against this, um, the, the, the luxury tax increases and all that. Uh, what are you hearing in that regard? Yeah, I would think, you know, the big thing was, you know, they, they wanted to cut, the union wanted to cut $100 million out of the revenue sharing pool. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're a small market team, you're going to fight that. And obviously, uh, Cleveland is a small market team. And, you know, I think they're, you know, they kind of, they're the voice in the wilderness. They're not, uh, you know, they, they put a winning team on the field for eight of the last nine years, you know, so they've been using their, obviously using their revenue sharing money in, in the right way, you know, teams, uh, you know, the, the other teams have not been. And, uh, but I would think uh, if you're Paul Dolan, you're, you're pounding the table and you're, you're holding a firm line on that. And, and from, you know, what we've heard, you know, uh, the, the union did drop their uh, proposal to cut revenue sharing, you know, to cut the revenue sharing, you know, to, to reduce that. Uh, how, how difficult might it be to get something like this ratified if there are pieces that are objectionable to those small market teams? Well, I think it could, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, the commissioner's job is to build, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, to get that, to get the, to get the owners to come together. I think, uh, you know, you know, that's part of Manfred's job. You know, if you work this hard on, on getting a deal, I think, you know, he's obviously talking to the owners, you know, when those, when those, when they break off those meetings, what they have like 12 different meetings mm -hmm. yesterday, I'm sure, you know, when he leaves the players, him and, uh, you know, Dan Hallam, they're his main negotiator, you know, they're talking to the owners and, and trying to build consensus that way. How uh, how kind of weird and surreal was it to sort of monitor these talks uh, as these guys were walking across parking lots yesterday in uh, in Jupiter, Florida, and and we get Twitter notifications every time one of these twelve meetings breaks up. They meet for sixteen hours. You know, it was it, it we're getting comparisons to you know like uh, long extra inning baseball games and uh, <laughs> just uh, just sort of a weird setting, but. You know, at, at one point it's it's eleven thirty, it's midnight, and and we're we're getting all these updates, and we're thinking, boy, they they got to be getting closer. There's there's really a sense of of hope if you're a fan right now. Yeah, I'm just wondering what the reporters were doing. It looked like they were looking through the fence the whole time. Where were they writing? Were they writing in the back seat of their cars? I, I don't know. Nightingale's got a desk that he brings with him, doesn't he? He just puts it next to his car and just sits there and watches. <laughs> yeah. I, it's it, it's crazy. There there were so many updates. I you know I I woke up at one point uh, middle of the night and there were so many updates on my phone that I just I I couldn't read through all of them. I just had to skip to the to the latest ones to see what uh, what was going on. Yeah. So you know, that's I guess you know you, you're going to stand outside uh, if you're going to you know stand outside in uh, for 16 hours. Florida is a pretty good place to do it as long as, you know, it's not raining or there's a hurricane, you know, blowing through there. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, speaking of being on location and being at uh, spring training, uh, you're out there uh, sort of chasing around the uh, the minor leaguers, the the recent draft picks. Uh, you had a chance to uh, uh, talk to Mike Chernoff at the airport. Uh, what, what's the latest from Arizona on the Guardians? Yeah, you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the camp officially opens to the media today, um, March 1st to March 14th. You know, and, you know, they've got like 90 minor leaguers in camp right now. They've been here for a while. Uh, I saw, you know, I was on the same flight as Chernoff. You know, he was coming back uh, from Cleveland to a good year. And uh, he said, you know, it's been interesting. He said there's a lot of talent. He, uh, you know, he was uh, talking about Gavin Williams, their number one pick from last year. Uh, you know, he's throwing, he's been touching 100 miles an hour in bullpen sessions. And, um they, uh, you know, they really kind of fired up about, you know, that big pitching class they, that they brought in last year. Well, 18 of the 20, 21 picks were mm-hmm. pitchers. Most of them were college pitchers. So, uh, you know, that, that I think that they've all been, uh, you know, they've, they've been impressed with the kind of talent they have. But, you know, you can tell that, you know, they're anxious to get this thing underway, to get the big leaguers in camp and get ready for the season. Did, did Chernoff provide you any insight as to the the strategy behind drafting eighteen pitchers out of twenty one picks uh, that year? <laughs> no, or was that? I, I mean, we still haven't cracked that egg on on these guys to to figure out where they're going with all that. Yeah, I'm still not sure about that. I think uh, Tito might have had a lot to say do with that. It sounded like <laughs> he was pushing he was pushing pitchers hard in that draft. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, hopefully we, uh, you know, you get a chance to maybe uh, maybe run down Tito out there, uh, maybe some of the coaches and, and, and uh, you know, get their thoughts on some of these guys if that's uh, a possibility. Uh, and, and just, hey, if you're out there, it, it's better than being here where it's 30 degrees, uh, I guess, um, uh, heading into the weekend. Uh, how are you spending Mardi Gras? That's what I want to know. What do, you, what do you do when you're on the road during Mardi Gras? <laughs> You go by, do, they have, do they have spring training is like groundhogs day so maybe every day is mardi gras out in spring training well i was gonna say do they have punchki in arizona i mean can you find a decent punchki in arizona that's the the donuts the the, the jelly donuts yeah, no you know i do not know i i don't i do not know that uh, i've never, I've be never the only guy going Hoynes would be the only guy going from uh bakery to bakery in arizona asking for punchki and getting weird looks from people because they have no idea out there all right uh we need to get into our top 25 most memorable uh indians all right i'm sorry cleveland baseball personalities of the last 38 years hoinsey covering uh today's uh today's got to be a, a favorite uh he's a he's a fan favorite and just a long time uh you know just a real popular player during his time in cleveland spent eight years in cleveland played over 940 games uh, with the Indians, had 1,097 hits, uh, 104 home runs, 565 RBI. Uh, and, you know, he, he sort of, he was the, uh, the, the engine in the, the middle of that, uh, that li- those lineups in the, the mid-90s that, that sort of made things go, the early 90s and mid-90s uh, that, that sort of made things go. Uh, uh, offensively for uh, for the Indians, uh, a what three time All Star, two time Silver Slugger, uh, finished in the top ten in the MVP voting in 1993. 
Uh, who are we talking about today, Hoinsey? It's got to be Carlos Baerga, Joe. Uh, this this was everybody's favorite uh, guy on the team, just because not just because of the way he played on the field, but his personality. He was so friendly and so approachable, and and just uh, you could tell he had the most fun when he was out there. Yeah, nobody had more fun playing baseball, big league baseball, than Carlos Baerga. He 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 had a blast, and uh, you know he came over in that trade with uh, with uh, the Padres in uh, for Joe Carter along with uh, Sandy Alomar and. And Chris James, you know, I remember uh, at that winter meetings, um, I was talking to a couple player, a couple people from the Indians, and they were they were you know kind of talking about this trade about you know who who Carter might go to and and San Diego, you know, Jack McKean had always wanted Carter, you know, really lusted after him, and uh, you know, and so I was asking people who you know who 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 would they want, and the Indians were looking for young players to start over. And, uh, and somebody told me that there's an infielder involved. And, uh, so I was asking around and, uh, I asked Bob Nightingale, in fact, I said, who, and he was covering the Padres at the time. I said, who is the best, uh, infielder in the, in the Padres minor league system? And he goes, Carlos Baerga. And I said, that's who I'm going with. And I, so I wrote it and it was right. I was into that one. That's uh, that, that was before Twitter and before all these uh, the, the rumors were out there before you even knew it. But uh, that that's a so that was the the old school way of tracking down the prospects, huh? Yeah, that was that was my best winter meetings ever. <laughs> I've been struggling ever since. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, when when you first met Carlos and he finally arrived and he was he was in the big leagues, uh, what struck you most about him? Just uh, um, you know, you know. Just, you know, how, you know, just how friendly he was, great smile, and, uh, you know, how serious he was about baseball. I mean, he, he really wanted to play. He was a little kind of shy at the beginning, but, uh, you know, you, I didn't think he would turn into the kind of, you know, that, you know, like the life of the party kind of guy. You know, he was, mm-hmm. he was like the spotlight was always on him, and uh, he loved it. I mean, and then, then you just saw, you know, he kind of, you know, uh, John McNamara in 1990 brought him along slowly. And, uh, you know, the next year he really kind of took off. And uh, what in, uh, um, you know, in, in uh, 2013 or no, I mean, in, uh, you know, two straight years of uh, 2,200 or more hits, you know, the first uh, second baseman to do that since Roger Hornsby in, in, in 1922. He did it. He did that in '92 and '93. Yeah, yeah, just a great hitter, and uh, you know, he just uh, you know he he played with energy, and uh, you know when he and he you know he was just uh, you know he ran the bases hard. He he just did everything like he was having the time of his life. One of my uh, one of my earliest memories of of Carlos Baerigan sort of getting behind him as a as a player from a fan's perspective was uh, the game, I believe it was against the Yankees in Municipal Stadium, where he hit a home run from both sides of the plate in the same inning. And I just thought that that was, uh, you know, the, the, the best thing. It, it, it really made him stand out uh, to me. And, you know, I was always trying to when uh, we would play uh, softball uh, on, a, uh, 
on a 12U field, we'd play softball with the high school, uh, my friends, and we, we'd try to hit home runs over the, the fence and do it from both sides of the plate, uh, just like Carlos Baerga did uh, back in the 90s. And, and that was sort of a, uh, an aspiration of ours. So watching him play was, you know, it, it, you, you always sort of knew that they had the big boppers in the lineup, the, the Albert Bells, the Manny Ramirez, the Jim Tomies. Uh, after him, but they they sort of needed Carlos in the middle of that lineup to to sort of make things go. Yeah, he was a number three hitter. You know, that's where you put your best hitter. In that game against uh, uh, the Yankees, when he hit the two home runs uh, in one inning from both sides of the plate, April 8th, 1993, in the seventh inning, he got Steve Howe first, and then Steve Farr, <laughs> our, old, uh, our old former Indians. Uh, he got him the second time and uh, just, uh, you know, just, he, and he didn't, he didn't even, he didn't believe he had set a record. You know, Bobby DiBiasio had to tell him uh, after, uh, you know, in the locker room afterwards said that he'd set a major league record. Remember he had been, you know, the first guy to do it. First guy to do it. Yeah. That was sort of, uh, cause I, I think other people have done it before or, or have done it since, but uh, you just, you know, felt really good for him that day. What, um, what do you remember about Carlos, you know, just approaching him in the clubhouse, maybe when they were at, at their highest in like 95, when, when there was all that success going on and, and he was, you know, really sort of one of the ringleaders of it. Yeah. Carlos, uh, he, he was the first guy that I knew that had a bodyguard. He had a bodyguard. He had uh, a tailor, a tailor that would come in and, and, you know, make suits for him in the locker room. He he had he brought in a barber. You know, he, he'd have everybody give he'd get at haircuts for everybody. He was he was something else. He was he was he was an interesting guy. He had a little snare drum that he had in his locker room that he that he played. <laughs> he he just had a heck of a time. He really did, and uh, just a, a great guy. And uh, just I mean, he was fun. He was. Uh, and he was always, you know, he was always fighting his weight. And, yeah. you know, he, there was a, that was a constant story in spring training. And I remember in Tucson, he would come in and uh, weigh himself after uh, a batting, after uh, after the workouts. And I'd be in there and he'd go, Paul Hoynes, I'm down to this. You know, so he'd be yelling at me. <laughs> he'd be yelling his weight <laughs> across I, the locker room. I had been writing about it. <laughs> He he'd be you were like uh, you were like Jenny Craig for him. He, he had to be accountable to you for the uh, for the weight, right? <laughs> uh, that that's a, and and that voice uh, like he's uh, he's got like a, a really deep voice too, and that that sort of to to hear him like I can I can just picture it in my mind, you know, hearing him say that because he comes around now with uh, a lot of the alumni stuff, and he's just like everybody just wants to wants to hang out and, and talk to Carlos and. And, and talk about those, those years from like, you know, 93 through, through 96, when, when he was, you know, just so productive for the Indians. Yeah. And he, <clears throat> Joe, he loved the Indians. He really did. When they traded him to the Mets, it was on, I remember it, uh, it was a uh, Albert Bell and Carlos Baerga were having a golf, a charity golf event. He came back, they traded him. He was crying when they, when he, you know, kind of, yeah, I, I remember him driving out of out down the concourse at Jacobs Field, and he was you know, in a golf cart, and uh, he was crying. He was he was crushed by the deal. He he really was, and 
you know, he, he ended up coming back to, for a little bit. He was so anxious to come back to when he came back for the second tour, he had like a million dollar, uh, a bonus in his contract that if he got traded, you know, if he got traded, he'd get a million dollars, but he waived that just so he could come back to Cleveland. He, he was, uh, he was, he was something else. He was, he was really a fun guy to be around. Yeah. That 99 season, he, uh, he only played in what, like 55 games, 33 with San Diego and 22 with Cleveland. And then he was out of baseball for a year after that uh, before a couple more seasons uh, with Boston and uh, Arizona. And then finally his, his, his last season in the, in the big leagues was with Washington in, in 2005. And you didn't even think about that. That's a 14 year career for, uh, for Carlos. And, you know, by any standard, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know what happened to him. I know, I know, he, you know, he, when, when he did get traded, he, he had, he had had some ankle problems and, uh, you know, he kept, uh, he kept getting jammed a lot. And, uh, you know, he just really couldn't rediscover that swing that made him so successful when he came over from the Padres. And, and you know, I think he fought that the rest of his career. But, boy, for, that, for those three, four years, you know, those first three or four years in Cleveland, he was, he was a dynamic player. He could run. He could, you know, he could field. He could hit. He could hit for power. I remember him once sliding into first base, beating out an infield hit. And he got hit in the face with the ball. And he, he got his tooth knocked out. And he got up, and, you know, the ball got away from the first baseman. He got up and ran, went to third, carrying the tooth in his hand. Jeez. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Uh, to wrap up, Carlos, what, uh, what do you think, his legacy is in Cleveland, the, the, the lasting impression, the lasting memory that, that he leaves uh, among fans, among writers, among, uh, you know, everyone who followed uh, those Indians teams uh, and, and still does today. Yeah, I think he's, you know, that presence, he's, he's another fixture from that 95 team that had such a stronghold on Cleveland and Cleveland's heart. Uh, he was kind of the ringleader, you know, he was, he was a guy, he was always smiling. He was always laughing. He was always coming through with a big hit. He was always available in the locker room. And he was just, he just had a blast playing baseball, Joe. He, he really, he didn't get cheated. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. That's going to wrap up Carlos Baerga. Another day of talks. Hopefully, Hoinsey, we're, uh, we're coming to the end of all of these negotiations. And we'll have something more specific to talk about on tomorrow's podcast. Uh, tomorrow we finish up the the top twenty five most memorable with uh, I guess the most obvious one that's still out there. Uh, uh, I think if you've been following us along uh, lately uh, and and giving us your suggestions on subtext that uh, you'll you'll know who we're talking about. Uh, and then maybe we'll have the subtext subscribers rank uh, who they believe are their top twenty five uh, coming up in a future podcast, but. Uh, all that's for another time. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Uh, Hoinsey from Arizona. We'll, uh, we'll check in with you then. All right, Joe.